Okay, I, I'm going to jump in. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll pray for us. Uh, thanks for, for, for being here for this session. Uh, we are talking about trying to get a grasp on the sexual revolution, which, as I don't have to tell you, this is obviously everywhere all the time. There's no escaping it. Uh, no matter what age children are, I mean, it's, it's hard to avoid this topic. So uh, I think we need to just – I don't think we're in danger of talking too little about it from a biblical perspective. I think – uh, excuse me, I'm saying that backwards. Too much. I don't think we're in danger of talking too much. I think we're in danger of maybe not being as clear on this as we would like to be. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to discuss these things that are of, of real importance and I know for younger generations, the younger you get, the more confusion there seems to be on gender and sexuality and marriage and all these things. And so, Lord, I pray for our students, for our children that we care about and we love so much that you would give us more insight, help us to better understand what this worldview is, where it came from, how to respond to it with something far better, which is your gospel and your truth and your word and God, I pray we would live consistently in front of our students, as, as Jared said earlier, and that they would see faithfulness and consistency in us that would be attractive to them and show them the, the truth and beauty of the better way of living, which is according to your word. So I pray you would uh, bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, uh, I graduated from here in 2005, and I had an older brother who was here at one point in the Old, the first graduating class. He didn't actually graduate from here, but he, he was in that class. So uh, I, I think I've known every graduating class. I think 99, I think, was the first year. I was 05, and I think I've known pretty much every class since then. Now, I, I don't have full knowledge of where all the students have gone and what all has happened. You may know far more about that than I do. But um, in my, at least from my observation, out of the hundreds and hundreds of students that I've been around or seen graduate or graduated with, uh, I have... Maybe I'm missing some people, but I haven't. I don't. I can't think of anyone who graduated and became a Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Mormon. Like all, all these. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a few. I don't know anyone who who's converted to one of those religions. But sadly, I do know a, a whole host of students who I've been friends with who have become secular. And I think the main doorway through which the secularism has come from for a lot of them is the sexual revolution. <laughs> So when I say sexual revolution, you know what I mean, but I'm talking about what's been most obvious from the 60s till now, but we're talking about homosexuality, uh, the LGBTQ+, we're talking about abortion, we're talking about all that is wrapped up in uh, where human sexuality and gender is going today, especially uh, also with the transgender movement that is that has really taken off in an unusual way in the last few years, uh, which has been uh, sad to watch. Um, I'll, I'll warn you that the first part of this is a little depressing. Maybe it's a lot depressing, but then I think we're going to move toward more hopeful things toward the end. But uh, I've got three points, kind of just a general outline. Uh, number one, where are we? Number two, how did we get here? And number three, how can we invite our students to something better? So where are we? Number two, how did we get here? Number three, how can we invite our students to something better? Just trying to boil things down, trying to simplify here. The fundamental question really is, do we look above to God or do we look within to self when we want to get an understanding of human sexuality and gender? So that's really the big difference today. Are we to look above to understand human sexuality and gender? Are we to look within to understand human sexuality and gender? Is it a look above to God or a look within to ourselves? So point number one, where 
are we? And I'm warning you again, this is a depressing point. 50 years ago, so within the lifetime of my parents, 50 to 70 years ago, uh, if, if a, say, a 15-year-old boy is struggling with you know, gender dysphoria, we, we've heard that term, right? Confusion about your gender. So a 15-year-old boy, 70 years ago, is saying, I feel a lot of feminine characteristics, a lot of feminine character traits. I, I think I might, I feel like I'm a girl. I feel like I'm a, a, a young girl, but clearly he's a biological boy. If he goes to a counselor or a psychologist 50 to 70 years ago, uh, this is what would happen, probably. He would tell the problem, and the counselor would say, okay, we can all agree something's wrong. There's a problem here, and we need to solve this problem. And the counselor would have said something like, Clearly, the problem is with your feelings. Uh, objectively, everyone can tell you're a boy, but your feelings are disordered. And so we need to work through some therapy, some counseling over the course of months, maybe even years. And we need to work through your feelings to try to get them to realign with who you are objectively. Because your feelings don't take precedence over your objective biological self, obviously. And that would have been common sense to everyone. Uh, now, you know what I'm going to say today? If a 15-year-old boy says, I feel like I'm a girl, I have these feminine desires and whatnot, I feel like I'm a girl, he goes to a counselor today, and this is amazing. The, counselor, the secular counselor today will look at the child and say, we got a problem, and the problem is with your biology. Your feelings are who you are, but your biology is disordered. You're a woman trapped in the wrong body. And so we need to do whatever we can to change your biological self to match your feelings rather than to change your feelings to match your, your bio, biological self. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, that is true. That, that, that change has happened within the generation since my parents were born until now. That, that has changed. And no matter who you are, can we agree that's a massive change in how we think about the self? That is a cataclysmic shift in one single lifetime to go from... Feelings don't take precedence over biology to now biology doesn't take precedence over feelings. So the question is, how did we get here? Like, where, where are we? What, what is this? What, what's going on? So today, what's being taught, and this is even in the public school system. I'm going to show you some things here that are just, just, it's just sad. There's a distinction now between biological sex and what is being called brain sex, your, your inner sense of self. So uh, you won't be able to read this, but... Not in all, but in a number of public schools, the gender-bred person is being used to explain gender and sexuality. So it distinguishes biology from your feelings. It, it, it also gets into who you're attracted to, and there's a range of male to female uh, and those kinds of things. So it deals with all the things you can think of. It has your gender identity in your brain. It has your gender sex in your biology. It has your attraction in your heart, and it has your expression in how you dress and how you appear. So this is being taught to, you can tell the age group is young. It's targeting to elementary type age students. Now, this right here has down here at the bottom, biological sex is a, is a term that's being used here. Now, this is like eight years ago. You know, so long ago. <laughs> so eight years ago, this, this, was, this is now considered uh, too narrow. So they had to come up with a new one. The new one is the gender unicorn, which you may have seen online. The gender unicorn, which looks even less clearly male or female. Uh, the gender, now, they changed something with the gender unicorn. If you look down here, it now no longer says biological sex. If I can zoom in, maybe I can't. It now says sex assigned at birth. As though the doctor looked at the newborn child and arbitrarily just said, I think that's maybe we'll just go with coin flip boy. As if it's just like assigned randomly. So this is now uh, being taught to young children in at least a number of public schools today, and this statistic is just, it's, it's uh, tragic. In 2021, over about 12,500 individuals were surveyed. 
So this is a pretty decent sized sample. Now, look at this for a second. The bottom here is traditionalists. This is people born before 1946. Less than 1% of them uh, claim to be LGBTQ, which makes sense, right? Born before 1946. Then you've got the baby boomers, 46 to 64, 2.6%, still a low number relatively. Gen X, so my older brother would be barely Gen X, 1965 to 1980, 4.2%. Now, now look at this. Millennials, this is, this is me right here, uh, 19, what is this, 81 to 96, we've got 10.5%. So one in 10 of my generation claims to be LGBTQ, which is a huge jump up. But Gen Z, 97 to 2003, it doubled again. It's almost 21% of Gen Z claims to be LGBTQ. And this is a credible survey, okay? I think this is Gallup or one of those things. It is an incredible survey just done last year, or no, two years ago. And so 20.1%. Now, what's astonishing, one in five, one in five of Gen Z. Now, the most popular is the bisexual. That's the most popular one, but, but that is still the group that we're dealing with. So things are changing incredibly quickly. What's going on? More bad news here. We've got two, two kind of leading societies, the endocrine society and have you ever heard of WPATH? This is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH. You may have heard, they're, they're becoming more popular now. Those two groups uh, have recommended a four-step process for people struggling with gender dysphoria. This makes me want to weep when I, when I read this because of what it says. This is, so I'm not just making this up. This comes from these organizations. It's promoted to say this is how you deal with children who are going through this process. You ready? You probably know these already, but number one, you socially transition first. This applies to children as young as three and four years old. This is like my daughter's age, four years old, three and four years old. So as soon as that child is expressing the opposite gender feelings, you should change the name. To a, if it's a boy, to a female name. As they get a little older, locker rooms, sports teams, try to see if you can get the, the child switched to the other side. Now, step number two, puberty blockers. I found out puberty blockers were originally made. They were designed for children who had abnormally early pu puberty showing up, like when, like maybe like six or eight years old. Like this abnormal, so they would take it to delay puberty till the right time. But now they're being used against their original purpose, which is just to get rid of puberty essentially altogether. And so puberty blockers are prescribed to children during the age, ages of puberty. Number three, you are then treated with the opposite sex's sex hormones, right? So the boy receives a lot of estrogen. The girl receives testosterone. I mean, I've seen the videos, you've seen the videos, right? I mean, I saw a video a few months ago. The video starts, it looks like a boy sitting in a car with a beard. It's a girl. She'd been taking so much testosterone that her body had grown more muscle. She was now growing a beard. She, she was, she had, her hair was thinning. She had lost almost all of her hair on her head. She said, this can't be recovered. She regrets the decision, and she is infuriated at the people above her who allowed her at ages 14 and 15 to make these decisions that are irreparable. She cannot, her voice sounds like a man's voice because the testosterone dropped her voice several octaves. She doesn't sound like a girl in her voice, and she says, I, I want to reverse this. I don't know how. Another, another girl named, uh, well, let me mention, I don't know if I, did I mention the surgical transition? This is step number four. Surgical transition is number four. This can start at 18, but now it's starting earlier. Like 15-year-old girls, uh, Chloe Cole, you may have heard she's making the rounds now. And she is not a Christian, but she is against the transgender movement. But she had the whole thing. She went through all four steps. She had top and bottom surgery. I just watched an interview with her last night. It makes you want to want to cry. She, she's, I think, 18 or 19 now. She said, I'll never be able to breastfeed a child. I probably won't be able to get pregnant. She said, I've got blood in my urine. And she goes on. It's just this awful, dark 
twisted thing. And she says, I was too young. I was 14, 15. I had no idea what decisions I was making. Here I am already 18, 19. I regret what I did. And there's no way to fully recover what I lost in this whole procedure. Chloe Cole. And you can, you can YouTube her. She's, she's really, uh, a lot of people nowadays are interviewing her. And her story is, uh, is, I think, worth hearing. People with gender dysphoria. So 41% of people uh, in the transgender uh, group attempt suicide at some point in their life. That, that is an unbelievable number, 41%. People who've had transition surgery are 19 times more likely to commit suicide. 19 times more likely to commit suicide than the average person. Now, I, I'm just painting the bad news here. The, the same, now, you may have heard of this video. It went viral about a year and a half ago. The San Francisco Gay Men's Choir put out a video. And I'm not kidding. These are the actual lyrics from a large group of uh, homosexual men in San Francisco. These are the actual lyrics that went viral a year and a half ago. Here's what they said. We'll convert your children. Someone's got to teach them not to hate. We're coming for your children. Your children will care about fairness and justice for others. Your children will work to convert all their sisters and brothers. Then soon we're almost certain your kids will start converting you. The gay agenda is coming home. The gay agenda is here. Blues clues. I mean, blues clues. Right? Uh, we all know Blue's Clues. Uh, I, I, I won't say her name. She would be embarrassed. But a, a woman at our church who has young children, uh, her daughter was watching Blue's Clues a couple of weeks ago. And all of a sudden, a gay pride parade is animated and shown on the show. I found it on YouTube. It was unbelievable what, what was there. So, for, so she like scrambled to turn the TV off. She's like, we're never watching Blue's Clues again with her daughter watching that. The PBS show Arthur. Remember the show Arthur on PBS? I used to watch it when I was growing up. I loved that show. Uh, just a couple of years ago, they had a gay wedding. So the, the professor in the show ended up marrying a man, and the whole show was built around his gay wedding. Uh, and when one state uh, didn't show it, one of the states in the United States, one state didn't show it on their, on their network, they got blasted from Good Morning America as basically being a bigoted state for not showing that episode on, on the news, on their, on their network. Peppa Pig. Y'all know what Peppa Pig is? So my daughter, we, we used to let her watch some of Peppa Pig's little animated pig cartoon made for like four-year-olds. They, we just found out that they have a lesbian couple, two mommies, in an episode with this little child. So now we're never watching that, obviously, again. But my daughter used to watch that show, and now they've got a lesbian couple in the show. A Disney executive a few months ago, a video was leaked. Uh, Latoya Revenue says her team has implemented, quote, this is a Disney produ executive producer, quote, a not-at-all-secret gay agenda. Unquote, and is regularly, quote, adding queerness to children's programming. Another, another Disney corporate president, uh, this is uh, Carrie Burke, she said, quote, as a mother of one transgender child and a pansexual child, she supports having, quote, many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories. These are the Disney executive producers speaking there. So, uh, just this is not some huge thing, but just some, these are the kinds of things I think we need to look for and, and use. Uh, you may have already seen this, you may already have this. This is called God Made Boys and Girls Helping Children Understand the Gift of Gender. Uh, I re we read this with our kids sometimes. Read it just last uh, week, a few days ago. It's so incredible. We're teaching this to our four year old. Look at this. They, they actually have XX and XY. So it literally says every cell in your body as a girl has XX chromosomes in it. So God has made you a girl down to every cell. And if you're a boy, God has made you a boy with XY chromosomes down to every one of the tens of trillions of cells in your body. I mean, it's telling this to kids. And it says, I love this. I'll, I'll turn to Molly and say, Molly, what gift did God give you? She said, he made me a girl. I said, that's right. That's a good thing. And I turned to Micah. I said, Micah. Uh, and you guys <laughs> teach Micah. I turned to Micah. I said, Micah, uh, what gift did God give you? He made me a boy. I said, yes. And Molly, it's a good thing that you're a girl. 
God made you a girl. That's a good thing. And you should be thankful for that. Micah, God made you a boy. That's a good thing. And you should be thankful. One is not better than the other. God has given us the gift of gender. And it's either male or female down to ourselves. So we, we, we want to kind of teach these things from an early age, from a biblical uh, perspective. And I should have said that. I didn't show this already, did I? Let me just say, uh, lest I be guilty of plagiarism. should have said this at the beginning. I'm, I'm stealing much of what I'm saying from Carl Truman. He is a Christian theologian, but he's written tremendous stuff. This is the big one, and this is, this, this is the Cliff Note version of the same book. So he wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's pretty dense, but it's, it's the best thing I've ever seen on what I'm speaking on. And then he wrote the shorter version, which is probably the one you might want to pick up, is Strange New World. But these books are a tremendous resource, and I'm, I'm guilty of plagiarism right now if I didn't tell you that. I, I, am, I am very much leaning on Carl Truman and his material. So, oh, oh, let me also say, uh, social media, obviously, you've got these influencers who have millions of followers, and they are spouting attractive nonsense to young people all day, every day. So there's, we, we've got to have a way to show them something better. Okay, so that was point number one. Where are we? Point number two, how did we get here? How did we get here? Now, sexual immorality is nothing new. Homosexuality shows up in the 19th chapter of the Bible. Right? It doesn't not long before you find homosexuality with Sodom and Gomorrah in the 19th chapter of the Bible. But something has changed. What is different between kind of old school immorality and today is immorality used to be seen as, first of all, rule breaking. And it used to be seen as um, an activity, something you did. Today, it's seen as being authentic. And it's also seen as, uh, as an identity, not an activity. See, like in the Roman world, there were lots of homosexual uh, relationships that happened, but people didn't define themselves as gay. They, they just, this is just what I'm doing. Just, it's just, it's just, I'm just doing something. Whereas today, now, it's, it's fundamental to our identity today. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual. We define ourselves by these kinds of terms. Now, I, I, I hope this makes sense. Tell me what you think about this. Um, I find very often with students that I've taught here over the last few years, the, the average student will consent. They'll, they'll say, yeah, I agree with you that the Bible does say homosexual practice is sinful. Students rarely debate that. And it's pretty clear in scripture. And so that, that's usually students. Yeah, I, I, in my mind, I agree. Marriage is for a man and a woman. Sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. Anything else is wrong. I, I, that, the Bible definitely teaches that from cover to cover. But here's what they say. They don't quite know how to put it into words. They're, it seems like their intuition their, their, their feeling, their sense of what feels just and good and right doesn't match what their brain is telling them from the Bible. You, you, you get what I'm saying? So they have this intuitive feeling of like, but they're not hurting anybody. Too, too, like A girl I talked to, she's not from our school, but a younger girl I talked to was, was at our church. She said, I have these two men who are coworkers. They're adults. They're in their 20s. They're gay. They, they've been together for years. They're the nicest guys I've ever met. They're not hurting anybody. I just don't get it. Like I know the Bible says it, but it just doesn't make sense. So the intuition and the brain are in contradiction on this. Do you see with students? And they're like, I want to love what the Bible says, but I'm almost embarrassed by it. I feel like with this, this whole justice and not hurting anybody, it just feels like the, the, the culture's right emotionally, but the Bible's over here, and mentally I've got a different view. And so... What I want to do is not just show you that the Bible says these things are wrong. I think we're on the same page there. I hope we are on that. I'm not, I'm not going to go through all the texts on that. That would be one way to approach this. But I want to try to go underneath the sexual revolution and look at the foundations. What is being believed in our culture at an intuitive level that is making our emotions be trained in such a way to feel like 
I don't get what the big deal is. That, that, that's the problem. The problem is our students know the right answer, but they go, I don't get it. Like, why would God be against that? It's not bad. It, it seems fine. So that, I'm not, why is that going on at the intuitive level under the surface? That's what I'm trying to address here. Mark, can I ask you a Yeah. So when you're, you're interacting with students, this is one thing that um, uh, a college student I was talking to was saying. It's the relationship that they see. And they'll say, but these people are so nice and I yes. have a good relationship. So that's where they, then the truth is in conflict with this sweet relationship. Yes, that's yes. That's part of it too, right? That feeling of the relationship looks fun and sweet and I got to know them and they were nice. And so the truth looks not as attractive. Yes. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that a lot of these false belief systems uh, get you with a hook on some emotional type of story. Either Christians horribly treating a gay couple at some point, like screaming at them, cursing at them. It's like, okay, well, that's horrible. And they, they hook you with either that kind of a story of abuse from a Christian or they hook you with a story of how nice a couple is. And usually that starts pulling you into the intuitive side. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a good insight. So this part could feel a little tedious, but I think it's worth me walking through this list. Again, it's from Carl Truman. Here, here's what his argument is. I think he's right. So... There are academics who write high-level stuff that most of us wouldn't have read. Like, you know, it might be like Frederick Nietzsche or Karl Marx. We might not, we might not spend all day reading these people. We might have read them in college. But we don't read them much. But their beliefs percolate. They kind of trickle down. They get into the academic setting, and they get taught to students. And the students sort of absorb it, and then it kind of just gets in the culture. It's, it's kind of assumed in the narratives on TV shows and movies and social media. So even if someone's never read Frederick Nietzsche... They do have Nietzsche beliefs in the air that they're living in, like a fish in water. It's just there. It's like you put chlorine in the pool. It's just there. It's all over the place, everywhere. So even if they've never read these people, these people are influencing our students even if they don't know them by name. So I, I want to give you the contribution of eight people. It's really nine, but eight, about eight different people here. Uh, and I think, I think this is spot on. Number one, if you think society corrupts individuals and that they're basically born innocent. So you're born innocent, spotless. Not <clears throat> dead in sin. Uh, you're born innocent and spotless, no original sin. You're born, you're born innocent in a society that, that corrupts you. Then that's going to say that from birth your inner self is good and pure, which is unbiblical. That comes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So he, he was the big thinker there. Of children are innocent. Society makes them evil. But they, there's no original sin. There's no depravity of man. That is – you understand, if we don't believe in the depravity of man by birth, we're going to mess up all our students and kids because they're going to think their inward self is basically trustworthy. And the doctrine of depravity is not meant to discourage us. It's meant to point us to salvation. It's meant to point us to, to Christ. I mean, people will say, well, I was born gay. And I'll, I'll say, okay, I was born selfish. I was born proud. I was born self-centered. I was born with all kinds of sinful temptations. That doesn't make them right or good or true. I need to be born again. I need to be forgiven. I need a new nature. So I, I, teaching children, just because a desire was there from an early stage doesn't make it good. I was, I've been irritable my whole life. I fight it every day with my kids, with anybody. I'm just like, oh, like I got, I got to hold on to that. God, help me not be irritable. But that doesn't, that doesn't just because it's there from birth doesn't mean it's good. We need to be born again. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau, number two. If you think feelings and emotions rather than reason and logic are where real truth is to be found. Real truth is the inward feelings, not thinking. It's feeling. That's the romantics that Jean-Jacques Rousseau gave birth to in the late 1700s. So remember the romantics? They look within and they're expressing their inward feelings. Does that sound modern? They're expressing their inward feelings. And that's the most important thing is what you feel, not what you think. It's what you feel that matters inside. Number three. If you think of everyone in the world as either in the category of oppressor 
or oppressed. Have you heard that recently? Oppressor or oppressed? Thank Karl Marx, right? The Communist Manifesto, 1848. Um, I think it's the second page of the Communist Manifesto. Karl Marx says, the entire world can be divided into two groups, oppressors and oppressed. Now, let me, let me get technical for a second. He was talking about economics oppression, right? He was talking about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and the owners of the means of production. I don't want to go to sleep right now. But you, you, the, the economic whole thing, right? That, that's what he was thinking of. What's happened is Karl Marx's thinking uh, have been kind of brought – have kind of been updated. And now we think of oppression and oppressed not in terms of economy mainly. We think of it mainly in terms of like sexual morality. So a heterosexual, uh, white, cisgendered male who's a Christian – I'm talking about myself, is an ultimate villain, right? Because now I am in the category of an oppressor. Because white is oppressor, male is oppressor, heterosexual is oppressor, Christian is oppressor, and cisgender, which just means I'm a guy. (laughs) Those are all the oppressor categories. So if you think of the world in terms of oppressor and oppressed groups, identity groups, thank Karl Marx and how that was brought into the modern age. And that's how our kids are trained to think that, that like being a being a uh, a Christian or a man or whatever it's like something to apologize for. It's like no, like that's not true. Uh, okay, so number four. If you think the world can be explained naturally on its own terms apart from the supernatural, Charles Darwin. I know he was a theist, but he he gave us evolution to say the world can explain itself. We don't really need God. Number five. If you think the existence of religion indicates that humanity is in bondage to superstition, that religion is bad, that is Frederick Nietzsche. Remember, God is dead and we have killed him, the murderer of all murderers. We have killed God and now we've got to become gods ourselves to take the place of God. So living without God, thank Darwin, thank Nietzsche for giving us a feeling of like, okay, we're not, we don't need God. We're going to look only to ourselves. Number six, if you think of life as public performance – isn't that social media, reality TV? Life is public performance. Thank Oscar Wilde. Remember Oscar Wilde? He's the playboy. He was also homosexual. He, he just he, – whatever he felt like doing, he did. He was going to live it up, and he died young. But he, Oscar Wilde was the guy who said life is public performance. Personal freedom is more important than traditional morality. I don't care about your morality. I'm going to be true to my inward self. Okay. The next one is one of the most important ones on the list. If you define yourself in terms of your sexual desires as either straight or gay or bisexual, thanks Sigmund Freud, early 1900s is when he was really doing most of his stuff. Now, here's what Freud did. Now, almost no one thinks Freud was right about most of what he said today. I mean, people have rejected a lot of his theories, but there is his legacy that lives on among several things. One of his big legacies is... This is disgusting. I looked at, I was, I was even Googling last night. Uh, I, it's hard to even read what he believed. But I was just reminding myself of his stuff. I mean, he, he believes we are sexual from birth. He talks about sexuality in infants, zero to four. He's talking about the sexual expression in infants and all the way up. So he believes, number one, you are sexual from the moment of birth. And number two, your sexual desires are the most important inward desires you have. They tell you all about who you are. You can explain everything about a person because of their sexual desires, which are from birth. Now, We may have rejected most of his crazy theories, but do people believe that stuff today? So again, sex is not about an activity. It's about what? It's an identity. And that is Sigmund Freud. He says you are who you are sexually. That's your identity is, is your sexual self. Here's the last one, number eight. If you think of oppression in terms of psychology and oppressive laws in terms of traditional standards of morality, you can think Herbert Marcuse and Angela Davis of the New Left you might remember 1930s to 1960s. If that sounds confusing, it's pretty simple. 
Oppression is not like, I think Thomas Jefferson said, if you don't break my leg or pick my pocketbook, you haven't oppressed me. He's thinking physical. Whereas today, if you don't affirm me in my sexuality, you're oppressing me. So it went from, if you don't attack me or if you can just tolerate me, that's fine. But today, you can't just tolerate me. Tolerate means I disagree, but I'm going to live with you in peace. Today, you have to affirm. You can't just tolerate the LGBT community. You have to publicly affirm them, even at work or wherever. Because if you don't affirm us, you are, in, you are attacking, you're oppressing us at a fundamental uh, level. Okay, now under this point, I'm still under uh, the uh, point number two. How do we get here? I've got two subpoints. Number one, the, the modern person is characterized by expressive individualism. The modern person is characterized by expressive individualism. Now, see if this makes sense. All those, okay, all those different people we just listed from 300 plus years of writing and thinking, when we put them all together, Rousseau, the Romantics, Freud, we put them all together. Here's the world that we're living in right now. Are you ready? We put them all together. Here's what we get. Number one, my inward desires are not bad. From birth, I'm good. Deep down. I'm fundamentally, isn't that, that's one of the worst beliefs in our culture. I'm basically good. So I'm born good. I look within myself to figure out who I am. The most important thing I'm looking for are my desires regarding sex and gender. Right? I look within to find my true self. The true self is my sexual self, according to Freud. And whatever my gender feelings are, whatever my sexual attractions are, that is who I am. And... If you disagree with me, you're an oppressor because you're telling me not to be true to myself. And the worst thing you can do is tell me not to be true to me. Otherwise, I'm living a lie. If I try to obey the Bible and I've got these desires I'm struggling with, I can't live out my desires. So what I have to not be authentic. I'm not my true self. I'm having to deny my true self to obey some external standard of morality from outside of me. And so today in our world, this is oppressive. Because now you've got something above me that has authority over me. God made me. He designed me a certain way. He made me a man or made you a woman or a man. He made me a certain way. And he has rules that correspond to how he made me. And I need to deny my sinful desires and submit to him. And listen, in the Bible, my most obedient self is my true self. The more like Jesus I am, the more like me I am, the, the, the me I was designed to be. Does that make sense? The more I deny myself and follow Christ, the more I am my true and authentic self, biblically. But in our culture, it's the opposite. If I deny my desires, sexually or whatever, if I deny my desires in our culture and I submit to an external Bible, I am now living a lie, I'm being inauthentic, and I'm being oppressed by this system above me. Does that make sense, that basic concept there? So, so that's, I think, uh, where we're at. Um, so whereas we used to think of a hero was someone who denied themselves for someone else's good I deny myself to help you that's a hero back in the day today the hero is not the self-denier it's the self-asserter so here's the modern story the modern story is not I'm going to give myself up to save you the modern story is my parents aren't going to like what I'm going to say my church isn't going to like it my friends aren't going to like it everyone's going to judge me for say homosexuality but I've got these desires, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not care what people – I'm going to be true to myself, and even if it costs me a great deal, and everyone you know, disagrees with me, I'm going to be true to myself no matter what. That's the modern-day hero. 
self-assertion, not self-denial, is the modern-day hero. Now, I'm going to read some quotes here. Remember Bruce Jenner? How can we forget our favorite athlete? <laughs> Bruce Jenner. So Bruce Jenner, who's now going, as you know, by Caitlyn Jenner. This is an interview from all the way back. This is 2015. This is a couple of years ago now. Uh, Diane Sawyer interviewed him about his transition. I want you to hear his own words. And he refers to himself in the third person. So when he says Bruce, he's talking about himself. Okay, so here we go. Quotes. I look at it this way. Bruce was always telling a lie. Now, do you hear this? He's being inauthentic. He's lived a lie his whole life about who he is. And I can't do that any longer. Diane Sawyer, are you a woman? Bruce Jenner, um, yes. For all intents and purposes, I am a woman. People look at me differently. They see Bruce as this macho male, but my heart and my soul and everything I do in my life, it's part of me. That female side is part of me. It's who I am. I was not genetically born that way. And as of now, I have all the male parts and all that kind of stuff. So in a lot of ways, we're different. But we still identify as female. And listen, and that's a very hard thing for Bruce Jenner to say because why? I don't want to disappoint people. Now, do you hear it? People have expectations. A man's a man. I don't want to disappoint them, but I can't live a lie and try to please them. I've got to be true to myself. I've got to stop being a lie. I felt like a woman. I'm going to be that way no matter what people think. That's the fundamental belief system that you see going on there. Okay, I, I'm stealing all this from other people. This is another pastor I got this from. This illustration really hit me. I'd never thought of this. Imagine this. Imagine a thousand years ago, Anglo-Saxon Europe. I don't know. <laughs> like a thousand years ago, like an Anglo-Saxon warrior walking around Britain or something. And just think of that. So I'm sure this would have happened. They're living in a shame and honor culture. Uh, those who dishonor, those in charge should be sh- you know, shut down severely to maintain social fabric, right? That's the idea. So imagine he gets treated badly by an inferior person in his mind. He says, I feel a deep anger toward this person. I feel this desire to smite and say he strikes back with vengeance and kills this other person. And he, he says, listen, a vengeful person, a just person is who I am. If you, if you let people dishonor their authorities, it's going to unravel the whole society. And so this anger I feel, this, 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 this vindictiveness, it, it is who I am. It's good. It's right. And I'm going to live it out. And so he smites those who are disrespectful to their authorities. I'm, I'm sure that happened, right? So then let's say the same guy. Say he's 25 years old. Same guy is, is, is walking down the streets and he, he feels within himself same-sex attraction towards another man. You know what he's going to say? He's going to say, that's not me. <laughs> the, the angry, vengeful me, that's me. But the same-sex attraction, that's not me. I'm going to work that out of me. I'm going to find a way to get rid of that. Those are not my, that's not my true self. My true self is the angry, aggressive self, the, the warrior. But the, the same-sex attraction, that's not, that's not me. Right? Now, fast forward to today. 25-year-old guy in Athens is driving his car right now. He gets cut off in traffic. He feels anger. <laughs> he feels aggression. He wants to pummel this other guy. Like, what are you doing? Okay? And he goes, you know what he says? That's not me. I'm going to anger management this week i got to get these feelings worked out of me because that's not me. I, my true self is not that angry person. That's just a little character flaw. i got to work that out through therapy. I'm going to get rid of it through anger management. That same 25-year-old guy today feels same-sex attraction toward one of his friends. And you know what he says? That's me. I am gay. That's what I am. Now, here's the point. We think that we're just being true to ourselves, but we're not. We're being true to the part of us our culture says it's okay to be true to. Do you get this? So a thousand years ago, the culture said vindictiveness is good. Gay homosexuality is bad. Therefore, this is the true me. This is not me. Today, it's flip-flopped. 
The aggressive need, not me. Work that out through anger management, not me. Same-sex attraction. You feel a moment of same-sex attraction. I'm at least bisexual. I may be homosexual, right? So today, people think we're just being true to our feelings. We're not. Our culture has a value-charged grid that's placing over our feelings and our heart, and it's telling us which feelings are oppressive and which ones are oppressed, which ones are good, which ones are bad. And we think we're just being authentic. We're not. We're being exactly what the culture wants us to be. So I think pointing that out to students can be helpful because they go, oh, I thought I was just being true. Like, no, like no culture thinks all desires are, are good. So let me mention gay men in particular over the last half century and just follow me here on this. Today, you gain huge kudos with your sexuality if you can connect it to being a victim. You, you guys know the ultimate currency today is a victim. It's the best thing you can be in our culture is a victim. So if you can connect your sexual desires with victimhood, you are the unapproachable. You're the top of the totem pole. Everything you say goes. If you can connect your sexuality with victimhood. So here's – I'm not making this up. This is, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'll, I'll give you my source here in a second. So 1969 – there were the Stonewall riots, and you may know a little bit about this. Police basically shut down a gay, a crazy situation that was going on with homosexual men. And they played the story as if it was being oppression from police brutality is how they played the story. Okay, There was a lot of illegal stuff going on, but they played it as we're victims. And that gave them some cultural kudos even in 1969. Now fast forward, 1980s. The, uh, AIDS, the AIDS epidemic strikes in the 80s and the 90s, and it was just enormous, just devastating the gay community across the world. Now, I'm not making this up. The book was called, I think, After the Ball, which you, you can't buy it anymore because it's out of print. It costs like $300 on Amazon. I would love to get it. It's like 50 pages. It's a little, tiny little book. It's written by two high-level PhD gay scholars, homosexual scholars. I think it was written in 1989, After the Ball. This is literally the book it says this. Uh, the AIDS epidemic poses a great threat to the homosexual community in discrediting us. It makes us look bad because our lifestyle is connected to a horrible disease. And so this could make the whole world turn against homosexual men. They actually say in the, in the book, they say, okay, we need to not let this crisis go to waste. We need to spin it so that we get sympathy as a victim, not looking like we're the problem, right? Uh, so this, they actually put it in print. This is what they said. In the 90s, here's what we're going to do. And they were unbelievably successful in this plan. What they said was this. A couple of things. Number one, we've got to say that homosexuality is not a choice. It's how you're born. It's not a choice. It is how you're born. And again, let me footnote this. Even if it's true that I'm born with certain proclivities to sin, I still choose whether to act on those temptations. So even if I'm born with a self-centered disposition, I can choose to act selfishly or not. So it's too simple to say it's not a choice. You may have more temptation toward homosexuality than another person, but that doesn't mean that you are not choosing to act or not act on those temptations. Does that make sense? So they said it's not a choice. It's how we're born. We didn't have a say in it. Number two, that's step number one. Step number two, the AIDS epidemic is devastating us who didn't choose to be gay. So we're victims of AIDS. We're not the ones promulgating AIDS. We're the victim of AIDS. They actually put this in the book. They said, listen, if we can spin this in a certain way, we will get massive sympathy from the world. And guess what happened in the 1990s? People said, we feel so sorry for the homosexual community because the AIDS epidemic is wiping people out. And listen, we should have total compassion for anyone who is sick, obviously. But we don't have compassion for the sin that brought that about. Right? We, compassion for the sick, not compassion for the sin. But they said, listen, we're going to turn the whole thing around. They, they were exactly right. They turned the whole world's view on homosexuality in the 90s into a, where we've gotten to where we are. And then here's the next part on the step. Anytime you can connect anything to being a victim and your sexuality, you put those together, you win. You win all day. You win every day in our culture. And that's what's 
That, that's what's going on today. When all else fails, you quote great theologian Demi Lovato. Okay, now if you don't know, she was a Disney star. She's gone off the rails, as almost every Disney star seems to do, which is tragic. But Demi Lovato, she cut her hair really short, kind of like a masculine haircut a couple of years ago, and she was interviewed about it from uh, Drew Barrymore. And here's what Demi Lovato said. Now listen to this. See if you hear the worldview. Quote, I was trying something that did not work for me. Now I'm doing something that is working for me. And instead of feeling judged by everyone, you hear the external thing? Instead of being judged by everyone, I'm just going to say, look, your opinion about me doesn't matter to me. I'm doing what I need to do for myself and my wellness and my well-being. I'm putting myself first in front of my career. And that's something I never did before because I was so preoccupied trying to be this feminine pop star that I just ignored who I am. You hear it? I cut my hair because... I just wanted to free myself of all the gender and sexuality norms, the laws, the standards that were placed on me as a, you know, Christian in the South. And when I cut my hair, I felt so liberated because I wasn't subscribing to an ideal or belief placed upon me to be something that I'm not. I mean, you hear, I mean, she's just articulating this worldview very well, I think. Uh, and she says, and now that I'm owning who I am, I'm the happiest I've ever felt. And that's because I'm being honest, you know, secrets keep you sick. This is me, and if you don't like it, deal with it. Do, do you hear, I mean, all those thinkers we just talked about, do you hear them all coming together in this one line of thought? My Christianity said women are supposed to be women. I don't like that. I, she actually changed her gender pronouns to they, them, because she didn't want to be stereotyped as a woman. But she calls what she's doing honesty as opposed to lying or secrets. So again, that's the framework. So if our students are hearing this kind of stuff everywhere they look online, which they are, their heart, their feelings, their intuitions are being shaped by these kinds of ways of talking. Then they hear Jesus say, deny yourself. And they go, that doesn't feel right. You're supposed to affirm yourself. You're supposed to live out your true self. You're not supposed to kill your flesh. You're not supposed to put to death your inward desires that are sinful. You're conform to God's rules. But what we need to show them is God designed us to be men or women. God designed us for sexuality in marriage between a man and a woman. And God's design is good. God is good. Um, Jared, just what you were saying a minute ago, uh, when you were saying about uh, us living consistently or faithfully uh, in the environment here, I think one of the best things we can give our students is, is that. When they see faculty living consistently with biblical convictions, with joy, Jim, I think about your joy and your love for the Lord, the students see that. When, when they see that in us, it, I think they'll realize after graduation what they had here. A student, I don't remember who it was, said to me, just, I ran into someone at a store a few weeks ago, but they said to me, in college you just kind of become a number to some professors. I, I realized how great I had it at Westminster. I, didn't, I took it for granted, and now I almost wish I had that again. And so when we live consistently, people will see the world is not offering something that leads to peace and harmony. It leads to all kinds of destructive patterns of behavior. If they can see joy and fulfillment in us and a consistency in us, I think that will stick with them. Maybe even longer than our lessons stick with them. That can stick with them into the future as they, as they think back. Now, I'm running short on time, but I'm going to kind of cut to the chase here. My second sub-point <laughs> is the modern person uh, sees happiness as a sense of inner psychological well-being. The modern person sees happiness as a sense of inner psychological well-being. I'll make this really quick. I'll just, I want to read, when all else fails, quote Demi Lovato another time. Uh, she says this. 
Over the past year and a half, I've been doing some healing and self-reflective work. And through this work, I've had the revelation that I identify as non-binary. So neither male nor female. With that said, I'll officially be changing my pronouns to they, them. I feel that this best represents the fluidity I feel in my gender expression and allows me to feel most authentic and true to the person I both know I am and still am discovering. You hear it? And then she says, if you want to love someone of the same sex, love someone of the same sex, be yourself and don't be afraid of what people think. So again, that is the pervasive worldview that we are dealing with. And I've, I've got to read this one too. I had the privilege of seeing the movie Frozen a few years ago with my wife, her sister, and her mom. I felt very masculine during this particular event. So we saw the movie Frozen, and I know we were haunted by 8- to 12-year-olds for several years with this song, Let It Go. Remember that? Now, I don't want to get this back into your head for another year, but I want to quote to you part of the Let It Go lyrics because this song doesn't in any way say anything about homosexuality or transgenderism, but the song lays the foundation that gives birth to those things. Okay, now, now listen to the – I know you've heard these, but listen to this because it's preaching a sermon to little kids about self-expression. And, and li- so the, the, the girl says, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. So they're conforming you to a good girl pattern. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm sick of trying to be conformed to this pattern. Conceal, don't feel. So conceal your true self. Conform to their pattern. That's what she's saying. Conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let's sing it together. Let it go. Jared, you want to sing here? (laughs) Let it go. (laughs) I'm sorry to reintroduce this. Can't hold it back anymore. Then she says, turn away, slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Right? So she's, I don't care what the system says. Uh, The storm, let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. The fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. Listen, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. When, when, a, when a seven-year-old girl absorbs that song, which she sang 4,000 times after the movie, it sounded so cute. We all enjoy Oh, yeah, let it go. She is absorbing a worldview that is faulty. And that worldview is paving her emotions and intuitions, training them, discipling them to be ready when she meets the gay co-worker who's so nice to go, they're not hurting anybody. They're just being true to themselves. Who am I to impress some good girl, good boy system on them? Why can't they just be no right, no wrong, no rules for me? I'm free. Why can't I just be true to myself? And so... Disney and all these things, we're being discipled in that. It's training our emotions. And then, of course, it is, it is helping them easily receive the message when it shows up. Does that make sense how it's showing up? Now, I don't want to hold you long. I just got a couple more minutes. Okay, just let me hold you over just a tiny bit. My last point is this. Point number three. Main, this is the main point, number three. How can we invite our students to something better? How can we invite our students to something better? I'm just going to read a couple texts. I'm going to close with a quick illustration. So Jesus said in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. Jesus affirms Genesis 1. He affirms male and female from the beginning. As you are made is who you are. And we should align ourselves with who God made us to be. Marriage is meant to represent Christ in the church. The husband has to be Christ, the wife representing the church. There has to be a male and female to correspond with Christ and his bride at the church. So you can't have two grooms representing Christ in the church. You can't have two brides representing Christ in the church. You have to have male and female to represent the husband and the wife in the, in the, in the, in the gospel metaphor there. Now, I want to end with this illustration. Oh, man. So I'll read this first. First Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Paul wrote this in the first century. Don't be deceived. And he mentions homosexuality next. 
So even in that time period, you could be deceived about whether people who live this way can go to heaven, uh, live that way. So do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Some of the Corinthians were practiced homosexuality. Some of them were adulterers and on and on. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have a gospel that can forgive, transform, and wash and change anyone no matter what they have done in their past. It's not hopeless. No matter what someone's done, there is transformation in Christ. And this is the story I'll close with. I, when I went here, this is probably 2001, I had ninth grade Spanish over in Emma Stevens' room. And uh, Christy Richardson was my teacher. She's great. I don't know if you know Christy Richardson. She's a missionary now with her husband and family. Oh, their, their son was here uh, last year. What? What's the rich? Aiden. Aiden. Aiden, thank you. So uh, Aiden's mom. So she taught me Spanish and uh, for three years. She's a great teacher, loved the Lord, loves the Lord. She told us to pray for her dad back in 2001. Well, we come to find out her dad was deeply involved in the homosexual culture. I mean, I'm talking like he had many partners frequently, like gay bars, all the stuff you would think of, almost a stereotype. He did that consistently for about a decade of his life, okay? She said, pray for him. He walked away from the faith. He's now totally into the homosexual lifestyle. We've got to pray for his salvation. Fast forward 2008-ish. I'm in college. I see a video about her dad online. I'm like, what is this? I click on the video. It's on a church's website. It's a testimony after a baptism with her dad. I'm like, what? I click on the video. I'll never forget this. He says, I was invited to church. This is her dad. I was invited to church. After 10 years, in, passionately a part of the homosexual community, I was invited to church. I did not want to go. Everything in me cringed at the thought of going to a church. I thought everyone's going to look at me. So I parked in the parking lot. got there late. I, I didn't want to get, get in my car. I walked to the church. I opened the back door of the church. I slip in. The service has already started. I slip to the back seat. I'm sitting in the corner of the room. So the song that was being played, you know the song from years ago? I'm forgiven because you were for, uh, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. Uh, I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. God's spirit is within me because you died and rose again. He said immediately, the, the lyric, I'm accepted, you were condemned. He said, I'm accepted? He said, there's no way God could accept me. He said, I know enough about the Bible to know my lifestyle. God can't accept me. He said, God can accept me because of Christ? So it led to him weeping. Within a short period of time, he was converted, he was baptized, and he joined this church. Well, Christy Richardson came here a year ago. Jerry and I met with her in his room a year ago. I asked her about her dad. She said, he's still walking with the Lord today. And now he's back a part of their family. So I think sharing stories with our students to say, God can turn anyone around. He can give anyone a new heart. He can forgive anyone. There is no hopeless case. And I think presenting the hope of the gospel is, is crucial for, for this whole conversation. All right, I held you all over. Thank you for letting me do that. And we are done.